record closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record-setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. As the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? Good evening, good evening, good evening. 98.4 Capital FM and welcome to another episode of Financial Focused where you can access accurate and timely global market outlook on demand alongside Ken Gishinga, Chief Economist, Mentor Economics, Mr. Wohoro, CEO Sandbox, and myself, Danny Muni. And to listen to us online, www.radio.capitalfm.co.ke forward slash listen live or download the iCapital FM radio app. Gentlemen, Karibu Sana. How is everything? I'm all right, thank you. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the things that are happening here. <laughs> it's it's a good day to be here, Danny. That's the beauty of radio. It's a theater <laughs> of the mind. Be the first to know what's happening on the global markets every Monday bright and early by visiting www.mentoria.co.ke to subscribe. You can reach us on today's episodes on WhatsApp on 0701984984 or tweet us at Capital FM Kenya hashtag the financial focused. Ken, it's been... Uh, there has been a lot of activity so far and just maybe to kick us off what's happening within the international uh, market and the equities ah indeed danny i think uh, much of the focus really has been on whether bidenomics is working inflation numbers are coming down uh, but the labor market is still resilient so those economic advisors around biden who are really uh, taking pride in this and the second quarter earnings are really coming through with a lot of uh, the finance and tech companies. So we're seeing um, really the Dow Jones up 0.22%, S&P up 0.39%. I think those two sectors, fintech, I think is really coming through and driving most of the positive sentiments, particularly in the U.S. There's also some positive sentiments from the FTSE 100. That's around the U.K. and the European area. Indeed, there is quite a bit of uh, profit-taking, particularly with some of the stocks that have, have been doing well. But from a broader perspective, I think Europe is still um, fairly in a problematic zone. Uh, number one, interest rates are still expected to rise. Uh, but even more importantly than, than that is uh, the issue of China. Europe has really great exposure to China. So if China is slowing down, uh, a lot of really the European economies that depend on Chinese growth uh, will be affected. So I think the broader story is still, uh, Europe is still, generally speaking, are still facing a tougher times ahead. Japan seems to be making for a good story. What's happening in Japan? Yeah, the Nikkei 225, I think it's up 0.32%. Again, I think there's some really good uh, finance and tech stocks. Uh, it's interesting how those are mirroring really what's happening in the U.S. It's, it's, it's quite impressive how Japan stocks really, really mirror what's happening in the U.S. But from a broader perspective in Asia, very disappointing numbers coming from China. The Q2 numbers are quite disappointing. And that anemic Chinese um, growth that was supposed to power the world economy. Remember at some point I said China and India will drive, but that's the share of Chinese um, growth to global growth is actually declining. So it's it's a bit of a concern in the, in the, in the, in the Far East. What can China attribute the hemorrhage towards? Because then the growth has been spectacular all the way till now. 
and then the decline also seems to be quite sharp or slow down in the growth. I think a big chunk is with the property slump. There was a huge property valuation um, that happened in China, and I think that has been uh, pretty much an oversupply of rental units, of housing units, uh, but the demand side uh, hasn't been as strong as the supply side. So I think what we saw possibly in countries like in the U.S., after the global financial crisis, uh, is sort of happening in a way. So I think the property slump has been possibly one of the biggest things that's really driving. What China has done, it's, it's really cut interest rates. You know, the rest of the world has been raising interest rates. China has been slashing interest rates quite a bit, but demand is still very, very subdued. So they've decided to go the Japan way. Indeed. In indeed. terms of rates. Looking at the continent, there seems to be very interesting figures coming out of Nigeria that was on a bit of a bounce back, but then seems that inflation has now gone up to a seven-year seven high. Inflation continues to be a big problem across the continent. Yes, Nigeria, Egypt is in, I think, the 30s. But in Nigeria, I think what, for me, I find it interesting is they're using this opportunity with the new president. They had a big session with the CEOs, what they call Nigeria 2.0, where they took about an industrial growth for Nigeria. Uh, what surprises me the most is you don't hear people talk about fiscal policy, monetary policy. Uh, that concerns me quite a bit on how they'll achieve those goals without having a good business um, environment. But there seems to be that strong uh, momentum towards what I call Nigeria 2.0, which is a phrase that's tend to use in the corporate world for strategy when you want to have like sandbox 2.0. <laughs> that's that's, right, that's yeah. it. So they're applying that. And I think there, there is this new philosophy that sometimes countries should be run like companies. Mm. So when you talk about politics and economics, a, lo a lot of people always ask, why can't you run Kenya like a company? But uh, the incentives of a political outcome and the incentives of an economic outcome tend to be quite, quite different. A country is not a company, and a company is not, not a country. country. Very true. South Africa? Well, I think South Africa really, again, uh, the PMI indices are still quite low. Still, I think um, the cost of electricity is still preventing manufacturing. Inflation is high, unemployment is high, interest rates are high. It's really hard to see where the light of the tunnel will be for South Africa. It, it is the most sophisticated economy on the continent. It's smaller than Nigeria, but it's far more sophisticated uh, than Nigeria. But, you know, you really wait to see where that brilliance will come from. But maybe it's only a matter of time, really. Uh, correct. Now, for Kenya, we'll, 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 we'll skip Kenya for the moment because today we are discussing politics and economics two sides of the same coin. So I think we'll tackle Kenya just as a pre-post show to tomorrow's uh, Manda Manu. And now when we go to the commodities performance, metals, gold is up, silver is up, copper is down, steel is down, iron ore is down. The variances still seem to show their head above this water. Gold is just holding very steady and silver as well. What's happening with the rest of the other metals? Well, I think the outlook on growth uh, is really driving what we are seeing. And as you said, uh, with the U.S. inflation numbers coming down, there is that feeling that interest rates, the rate hikes might be coming to an end. So that's giving some people some positivity towards uh, global growth, despite what I've said about China. And I think that positivity is what you're seeing through um, some of the metals. Although, obviously, when you start going to the crude oils, it's a different story. It's about the price cuts, uh, the Saudi Arabia's, the Nigeria's. 
Um, but still, those price cuts are still not able to provide sort of like that stability. In fact, there's that famous quote that OPEC can't cut its way to prosperity. Mm. So those are sort of some of the sentiments. But I think generally speaking, I think uh, the positive, uh, the end of the interest rate hike is supposed to bring some momentum to the global economy. And that is really powering what you're seeing in the individual commodities. Are we foreseeing any big economies maybe likely to raise their, their, their rates? The interest rates? Well, I think it depends on inflation. I think in most countries, inflation is um, coming down. Um, look at here in Kenya, it's mm-hmm. coming down. So I think most central banks are, believe monetary policy is working. Um, and of course, it's you know those interest rates have really made the cost of living very high. You know that's one of the reasons we are having the high cost of living. So I think even central banks are realizing uh, that um, you don't want to really sort of like over tighten. Over tightening can actually have really really crazy impacts you know sometimes when you you know i was talking to somebody today and he was telling me business is so tough actually he was making more money during covid than, than during now. now so it just shows you and you can imagine how covid was so disruptive so it just shows you how tightening when there's liquidity crunch in an economy it, the effects can be so bad so i think even central banks are aware of that and they might start slowing down on those um tightening moves Focus on uh, the agricultural commodities. Wheat has gone up, sugar has gone up, canola has gone up. And then, of course, coffee has gone down. Tea is up, rice is up, and palm oil is down. Seems to be a bit of uh, an interesting oscillation. As you rightly mentioned, Russia has pulled out of the black sea grain um, uh, contract could that be the thing that is making wheat to go up and maybe some of these grains? Absolutely. Anytime you have disruptions in the supply chains, whether it's wheat or sugar, any disruptions definitely make um, the cost of the commodity go up. So whether it's in the geopolitics, messing with Russia, or whether what you're seeing in with the sugar space, particularly in Kenya, definitely those are the things that make uh, the cost of um, production go up. But of course, of course, the increase in fuel prices also make the cost of production go up. What would be Russia's motivation to pull out of this treaty? Well, I'm not the poll. Of, of, of the grain, <laughs> of the grain. Is it, is it, is it an economic uh, agenda they're trying to bring in? or Because largely a lot of the countries that benefit from the grain, which comes from the Black Sea Initiative, are African countries, most likely not very much the European or the Western world. However, there is a bit of an effect on them. But what would be China, Russia's motivation to pull out of that of that uh, initiative? Well, that sounds like a very political uh, discussion. Uh-huh. I mean, for me, that's uh, as a, as an economist, it's hard to see why. Because you're right, um, that uh, familiarity it's built with Africa uh, might be compromised with with such a move. But I, I suspect that's more on the political side, really, than which on the economic which side. Which makes me then shift gears, and then when we come back, I'll ask that question because we'll be discussing <laughs> politics and <laughs> economics now. Just to really get into it, tomorrow we have a new day of no work and we are discussing politics and economics. So maybe just to begin, Mr. Ohoro, why do we vote? Uh, We vote so that we are represented in the national decisions of of a nation. Uh, you can never under, underestimate or understate the fact that um, 
your one act every five years that in a sense exercises your sovereignty as a citizen is your ability to vote. Underlying that is always the assumption that the person you vote for, and I mean at the local level, your MCA and your MP, is there to represent your sovereignty as a citizen and therefore your interest as, uh, as your representative. And so at the heart of it, uh, there are countries on this planet that don't, even, don't allow you even that basic right. And so it can never be overstated that uh, the ability for you as a citizen to be able to be represented freely and democratically in a national assembly of some sort sits at the heart of citizenship. And that's what it is now. That's the perfect, in its perfect form. Now, the practice of it, of course, then is uh, part of the reason we are here to um, expand that discussion. And, and therefore, would you say the representation is more economic or is it is it tribal <laughs> is 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 the motivation the initiative to wake up and queue and vote to be represented in the affairs of this republic more inclined towards the economic side of things or just to be represented because my tribe can be in the sitting table uh, of course in its uh, in its in its uh original uh, purest form of course they are there to represent your interests and your interests are all captured in economic well-being there's no use of electing someone to be your 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 representative if he ends up making you poorer so one well, part of the reason I say our debate today about economics and politics are the same part, a part of the same coin is really that they exist to improve your welfare and so the discussion when you go to vote, it's always driven by one thing. Just as in the private sector, it's driven by self-interest. And your self-interest must be, is always that. If I vote for Mr. Gishinga here, five years from now, I should be in a much better place than I was uh, when I voted for him. Now, so there's an, an implied contract there that your representative is there to improve your well-being, your, we your welfare. And so if anything happens that seems to break that, then there's an implicit uh, break of contract. And I think a lot of the angst we feel in our nation right now is also around that debate. Is there a breach of contract that between what we sent you there to do and what you're feeling now is not uh, congruent. There's a problem between those two, between the promise and the reality, between the promise and the promise keeping. And I think that's why um, you cannot have, have one part of the debate without the other. You cannot lift one. It's, it's, it's almost like a long stick. It's like any stick. Uh, I, love, I love that analogy. That if you pick a stick on one end, you also pick the other end of that stick. And so uh -huh. politics is exactly like that. So two, say, two parts of the same coin or our stick with uh, we pick one end, you also pick the other end. There's no way you, you lift a stick from the ground and the other end remains still attached to the ground. Well, for you to use it effectively is that you f you take the whole stick and you cannot di you cannot divorce the other end of it just because you lift at this side. And so it goes to a very, a, a very important uh, thing that uh, debate, part of a debate and some of the implied meanings around... Uh, why this is so central and so important to us as, 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 as a nation. And, and so if we go to elections and we vote so that we can improve on our economic standing, 
what then becomes a difference between economic growth and economic development or are they the same thing uh economic development is is uh, is an impact it's, it's the end of a process economic growth is the process by which you're growing the economy from one one state to another now it can also be that you you put policies in place it should be that you put in policies in place so that the general welfare of the average uh, citizen does get to improve now if you measure the welfare the economic or the we call it financial economic is more than just finance but let's say in its totality and let's say when before you came to power you we were worth one thousand dollars five years from now we measure again adjusted for inflation and we are worth five thousand dollars that four thousand is economic growth the five thousand at the end the new value is now your economic uh, status your economic um, your new economic uh, um, Quantity, quantity uh, or value. Value. Okay, value. Now, it sounds mundane, but um, we instinctively know this. And so even where countries, you have countries, a lot of countries that have elections, but don't, even even with the election, there's a certain resignation in the population that we just go through the motion because we have no say in exactly how we can improve our welfare. And probably the, one of the greatest uses of, of political power is creating an enabling environment so that Wanjiko can go about her business, Wanjiko can get to keep most of her money, thank you very much, and Wanjiko can plan for the future with a sense of certainty that tomorrow will, will come and that tomorrow will be stable also. And uh, that debate will never end as long as you're this side of uh, God's, uh, God's earth. I, I think what Wahara said is absolutely spot on. And if you are to extrapolate it, a lot of people are asking, as of now, in the political situation Kenya is finding itself right now, why is the issue of the economy, the finance bill, why is it so central? In fact, some people are asking, is this the first finance bill Kenya has had? And I keep saying, no, it's not. We've had finance, we've had VATs. But what I've always said is every generation has its central concern. If you go back to the 1930s, the concern around Harithuku. You know, it was really about the colonial um, takeover of African land. 30 years later, when you go to the 1960s, it was about independence, the Oginga Odinga, Jomo Kenyatta. 30 years later, in the 90s, it was really about multi-party politics, ability to express yourself politically. It didn't mean there were, other, there were no other problems, but those were the central concerns. Now, 30 years on, which was the election of last year, it was really about the economic mm. situation. You know, why is unemployment high? Why do we have a huge public debt? So it's not that these things were never there. It was they're always on the periphery. But now they've become a central part. And that's why the issue of the finance bill right now has become front and center. It's not that it's the first. You know, VAT was introduced during the time of Saitoti, 1989. Mm. It's been there for 30 years. But it's never been to a place where VAT on fuel, you know, it's VAT, actually tax on fuel is about 40% right now. What you pay at the pump, 40% of that goes to taxes. That's actually one of the highest in the region. If you compare that to the U.S., you know, the state of Illinois is the highest at 14%. South Africa, much less. So the issue of cost of living, it's, it's always been problematic, but it's never taken 
a central force. And I think that's why we are seeing a far more fierce reaction to 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 to, to what we are seeing right now and sort of like in the political economy of the day right now. And so before I come back to the Finance Act, like you've just mentioned, what do you think is making Kenyans be so agitated that we have to now hold, we have to pick it tomorrow, we have to pick it on Thursday, we have to pick it on Friday. So we're having a five-day weekend, we'll work again Monday, Tuesday, and then we are back on the same cycle. Until then, maybe what we are claiming for is looked at. But then what 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 do you what do you feel is is a challenge or where's a disconnect between the citizens right now as it were and the government of Kenya? I think there are many layers to that question. Obviously I think what has triggered this has been the cost of living, but I think that has been a layer on top of other issues of maybe excesses, you know, the issues of the fifty CSs, that perception of government largesse. But definitely, the cost of living has been an issue, particularly with the urban, what you call the urban poor. You know, those in the rural areas, they can always do some farming. And that's even when inflation is computed in Kenya, it only looks at about 13 of the economic zones. So the people who are living in the city have no access to farmland, um, jobs are scarce, and now they can't afford, you know, your matatu fare, the cost of your everyday goods. I think that is sort of like um, a nerve code that has been tapped by the opposition um, to really uh, rally people around that. But obviously, Danny, there are many other issues. Uh, people have obviously things of corruption, things that we've spoken about uh, for not just in many previous administrations, but I think the fact that people are able to link things like public debt with higher taxation, very few people maybe 10 years ago would have made that link of our public debt and higher taxation. But nowadays even ordinary mamamboga will tell you, you know, Kenya ikonadeni, you know, taxes, lazima zichukuliwe. So those are the things that I think now Kenyans are starting to ask. There are people able to connect now their personal well-being and not an economy that is still recovering from COVID. Mm. COVID took away almost 2 million jobs. Many of them have been recovered, but we're still not fully uh, back into where we were pre-COVID levels. Uh, people had been used to some subsidies on fuel. Now those subsidies have been taken away and taxation. So I think the cost of living is front and center but it's sitting on a layer of yeah, multiple multiple issues. But Ken and Mr. Ohoro, maybe this one goes to you. The whole issue around cost of living is not an exclusive event to Kenya and to Nairobi only. Right now we've just highlighted Nigeria's high inflation at a seven year high. So Kenyans being the kind of people they are and very woke and very now knowledgeable in that sense, are Kenyans picketing because of the cost of living or are they picketing because of accountability? Because Sorry to interrupt you. When, when the Auditor General says, and I quote, there is no financial statement to show the debt position, she says, she continues to say, the status of the country's public debt is only included as an annexure in the consolidated fund statement of expenditure. It is not possible to ascertain the amount redeemed and current value and therefore the validity of the public debt expenditure. So Kenyans are seeing a finance act where they're really being taxed heavily. 
the Auditor General comes out with this kind of a statement and then the government appoints 50 CASAs and does all these things. Uh, the head of state will move towing 100 cars. Is, is that what's making people really pick it or is it the cost of living? You know, it's all of the above. I, th- I think something very important uh, to add what, um, to, this, to, to this conversation is a country uh, evolves over time. We mature over time. We are not static. Now, we've been adding 10 million new citizens every decade since independence. About 10 million. Seven, 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 seven up to 8 million. That has meant we've also had 60 years of a, what I call a peace dividend of educating our population. Like, unlike a lot of countries in Africa, we've had an, an interrupted growth and an interrupted development of a human capital. To a point I've said before, we have the human capital is coming out of our ears. We don't know what to do. We've over-succeeded in producing all this manpower. But what does that mean? It also means that you're creating every, every decade, you're creating an ever more sophisticated population. So that a population that would have put up with some of the things in the past is going to be much harder. We talk about uh, youth bulge. Now, the youth bulge can be a curse or it can be a blessing. But if you have a youth bulge and you've educated that youth bulge, then you, you, you create a, a very uh, inflammable situation. So that's on the one hand, just in terms of evolution. So the issues that the, the last, the last uh, elections w- were unique in that it was the first time it, that the whole campaign was driven by economics. Now, albeit it was uh, class, class warfare, culture in class, class warfare terms, but that was really powerful because it said that for the first time, even the ground, one inch on the ground, understood economics because not only does he feel it, but he understands some elements of, 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 of uh, public accountability, public finance. You could talk, you know, I, I love watching uh, this thing on, um, on YouTube of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Parliament Yes. Because those really tell you something about the quality of the human resource in this country as a population has moved and it has become more sophisticated. So we cannot, it's hard to dismiss them because you're saying, you know, you don't understand. Of course they understand. But you're right that there's a second part to this, and that is this. If you're going to ask me to pay more, the quid pro quo for me should be that you demonstrate to me that you're getting better at accountability, Right. You know, we've come from a, a, de- a decade where we were told that we lose two billion shillings a, a, day. a day. Now, that number has been banned there. But it also tells you that there's no such thing as, as, as an empty basket when you're in government. The reality is this. Every day you're collecting between four and maybe about eight billion. Every day. Now, in any other sector, in any other world, in any other situation, that's powerful, Right. Now, the question about what happens to it starts being academic if you're also raising uh, taxes, right? So the issue of the quid pro quo, yes, you collect more, but you have to demonstrate that you're more accountable, you're, you're more disciplined. And so the one conversation as a country we've had many, many times, but never had uh, traction, is a question of um, expenditure management, right? You keep talking about it, but still the same thing. And I think that now seen by an educated population creates a very strong sense of need for accountability. And I think that's really the foundation around all our debates really should come from that. You know, you cannot have one end without the other. You can't have more revenue and less accountability. If anything, you want to demonstrate before you start collecting more revenue that you've tightened your, your uh, financial discipline. 
which is why uh, a country like Singapore, I like being Singapore because we're all tired of the Singapore, the Singapore Correct. example. Yes. But except for one thing, I will not tire of speaking about Singapore's uh, stance on uh, financial accountability because it set a gold standard, not just in Singapore, the entire world, even the West was not, did not have a, 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 a um, such a strict blueprint. Uh, 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 yeah, strategy for, for financial accountability. So much so, I was just reading the other day that even when uh, the American government had to play politics of international politics of trying to what is it, bribe or to interfere with Singapore's uh, Singapore's uh, system back back in the day, the prime minister basically called the American president and told him, you play that game elsewhere, but here there are no exceptions. If you guys are going to come and work here, and it's a little small city, sitting to a mighty power, if you're going to come into this arena called Singapore, you're going to play by the rules. Now that's a commitment at a level that is generational in terms of its impact. And Africa, we're yet to see that. So the association to Singapore is most favored when it's about getting more taxes from citizens, but in the terms of accountability, then the whole Singapore story sits very far from... No one, no one talks about <laughs> the fact that Singapore is a gold standard for... For accountability for now it's and no wastage. Uh, to be fair, it's f- slipped a bit, but it still it has a legacy and a history of public servants are absolutely held to a very high standard. And for that, in fact, the quid pro quo in Singapore is we will pay our public servants very well. We pay them the best in Asia. But the quid pro quo is that you're not allowed to build business. No, 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 no uh, conflict of interest. Service. Conflict of interest must be declared, and if it's declared, it is not up to you. It's, it's given to an independent authority to to report back to Parliament that this is, is this is a kosher. Or it's not, and if it's not, your immediate um, demand on you is a step down. So let's stop, stop talking so much about the revenue side and start talking a lot more. If people are demonstrating about accountability, I feel that we have a very different conversation. Because if you get caught up in the politics uh, as they are currently, you know, you end up being labeled one thing or the other. And I think we all have a country too much to want to burn it down. So any responsible political st- speech that diverts us from talking about, to me, it's really the accountability question. Then I think we are missing the mark. And that is our legacy, especially my generation who are 60s or 60s. <laughs> <laughs> now, the yeah. finance, sorry, the the budget was, was read. And some of these striking things that really didn't seem to show good or utmost good faith in supporting Wanjiku or the hustler is how how would a government, for instance, remove tax on spare parts to helicopters and then increase tax for any businessman or any individual who's trying to maybe import a car into the country from 20% to 35%. And then that same car that you're supposed to fuel, then the tax also goes up by another 8%. So what's the message here? Are we all supposed to buy helicopters? Because then there, there seems to be a bit of reprieve. Or what's what's the, what's the big plan around... Um, you know, maybe from Treasury and 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 and, uh, and and CBK going up towards the executive. Yeah, I, I tell you, maybe I'll give him an attempt to answer that. 
it's not that hard. <laughs> I, I, I have a view about it, but I want to hear you. I think the big plan was actually set forward in session paper number one of 1986, which was supposed to make Kenya the market economy. Because what Wahoro said is very true. We've educated uh, an amazing human capital, like the talent you see on these streets. You know, you meet people who are drone pilots, you know, mm. on these streets without jobs. I think that development of human capital should have gone hand in hand with the development of markets. Mm. Because as you have more talent coming through, the government needs to do less and less so that the private sector thrives. And I think session paper number one of 1986 was not to orient Kenya to become a middle class where markets thrive. So where education did very well, even Mr. Kibake came in and extended free primary education, we've not allowed markets to thrive. We still have this public sector domination. We still want to have the public pass. We've not allowed the markets to thrive. Think of how many IPOs we have done. When was the last time Danny we did an IPO in this country? Possibly a ten de- years ago. Ten years ago. During the United States, to date, this year, about 72 IPOs. So you can't develop human capital, yet not develop markets and innovation. So I think we've done very well on education. I think Mze Moy's legacy was, was on education. But we've badly failed in creating markets. We are not really, you know, with the innovation, the markets that are coming. And I think that's the reason uh, we have this contradiction where you have people are saying, why is the government taking so much taxes to do things we can do on ourselves? That's, I think, the great contradiction of our times. So don't uh, let the bigger body do what the small body can do. Yeah, that's actually the principle of subsidiarity. That's true. And, and then and then to that, and it's, this is really um, goes to the heart of, I like the idea of markets. But I like, uh, but markets is always about efficient allocation of resources. Yeah, when you get markets working efficiently, then if you're an engineer, you have someone to exercise your skill, to convert that skill into a product, into a service that makes it work easier, makes someone else's life easier. You cannot, for example, you cannot talk about industrialization because this is the other part to, to this whole conversation. It's not enough of human capital. It has to be productive human capital. So if you go and then overproduce CPAs, that's all very good, but you know, beyond a certain point, if there are not enough companies, then any CPA who graduates beyond that is wasted capital. So yes, on the one hand, you, you grow human capital, but at the same time, you also grow industry, what you're calling market source. You grow industry so that the productivity you're generating in your, in your people finds some expression elsewhere. So for example, when China wanted to, to modernize, yes, it opened up its economy, but there's one thing it refused to do. It is it will not open any sector where there's not two things, a transfer of knowledge and skill, but also a partnership with the local. So you, you, you forced a, trans, a transfer of technology and, and skill. And then a point came when the government, this is government-driven, where the government said, if after 10 years you're still in this sector and you don't have an equivalent like this, then this policy has failed, right? 60 years after independence, there are things we should not be debating right now because of this sort of uh, failures. And so it, it, it is straight to say, oh, the Kenyans are demonstrating because of uh, economics. No, this, is, this has been part of a, of a longer journey and what to call some policy failures that if they're not addressed now, or if not been addressed, are going to be something that keeps ho- uh, holding us back. 
By the way, other our neighbors are getting on with some of correcting some of those same mistakes they've seen us make. And so I think uh, the whole productivity conversation is very critical. But there has to be a, a productivity around industrialization. I'll give you an example. If you go and do, I'm going to industrialize. You will not industrialize in isolation to, to a Kali sector, to SMEs. Because to me, that's not industrialization. Because it just means it still remains the big end of town. If the whole value chain of any industry doesn't trickle down or does not get segmented enough into the cottage industry, into the Juakali, into SMEs as, a, as, a, as um, part of the integ integral part of, the, of that value chain in industrialization, you will find 10 years from now, you have three big companies which are almost likely to be owned by foreign, uh, foreign powers. They've been very little skills uh, transfer and knowledge transfer. And all you have is you have more people who are stuck in, in the purgatory of, of small business with no hope of ever moving out of it because there's been no sharing of value right down the, the chain. And so people listen to a lot of uh, industrialization policies. I always say, start at the big, uh, yes, start at the big end because government is only good at doing big things, right? But open the gateway for everyone else in the value chain to be part of it. And to me, I think that's where our debate around politics and economics means that you can never really separate the two because at some point, the, the SMEs, as we currently are seeing now, people are shutting down businesses. have a situation where even uh, office space, people are giving up office space because they can't afford. The thing is contracting. The economy is contracting at a time when we desperately need it to be expanding. expanding. And to your point, so therefore, is, is there a possibility that policy correction, policy change can happen without the Finance Act as it is right now? Does the, does the Finance Act need to be there to support the policy change? Uh, the, the Finance Act, okay, here's, here's the, the technical answer. The, uh, the Finance Act, and I, I try to understand why it was there. It was there because you can no longer borrow. Your credit is bad. You need to raise more money. So you say, okay, the only place you do is you go back to the people. But in going back to the people, you you the process by which you involve the people in that conversation should have been one other people get to say public participation in its purest form uh, we understand that you need to raise capital or uh, is revenue but can we have a say in where you can raise it from right that conversation then became uh, a pretty toxic one because it became us versus them rather than it's a national debate that's what in my view we should have become and so, yes, you need to raise capital because you couldn't go out and borrow. But incidentally, they still did borrow. We still did borrow. They're still borrowing, yes. Borrowing overseas. But ultimately, if you then raise revenue from the bottom end of your, of your population, and that's easiest to because you know, per unit it's very small, apparently. But co collectively, it dampens aggregate demand at the place it shouldn't. That's a place where most of our demand comes from, mm -hmm. at the bottom. But if you tax that bottom, the laugh curve not only doesn't work, even the, the notion of, of stimulating any remaining demand, uh, demand dies. Then you end up into what I, uh, what, you'd call, what I call an economic spiral. It's a spiraling down because then, then people quit the, 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 the official market. People end, then you create incentives for people to, to go into the illegal things just to make ends meet. So you begin to create a, a dynamic at the bottom that will, in the, in the end, can create a monster that's going to uh, eat. <laughs> you can create... Truly expand the, the Gini coefficient. The, the, the Gini, the Gini, the, yeah, the Gini. 
Well, the genie you out of, and I mean the other genie, the ghost one, <laughs> coming out of the bottle, <laughs> could be a very, uh, a very destructive one, yeah. right? Then, of course, if you then have uh, irresponsible statements that talk about people dying, it's, 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 it's unforgivable, really. Which, which crisis has more severe outcomes? Is it a rising inflation? Is it an energy crisis? Or is it an economic recession? Economic recession captures the first two, I think. So which one, if they were to happen, in this case, an economic spiral would have the most devastating effects for now this country? Yes, the first two, the first two happening will lead to the third one. But the economic spiral down is because more and more sectors begin to go offline or collapse. And the moment that happens then, okay, here's what happens. You end up in a situation where, for example, you raise taxes and suddenly even Gikomba, people who sell second-hand clothes, uh, think, no, this is not profitable anymore. So they quit. But in just because they quit uh, selling second-hand clothes doesn't mean they disappear into thin air. They have to uh, they, uh, they have to substitute that. An alternative. What's the alternative? So they said, okay, we're all going to Matatu. Suddenly Matatu is double, which means competition up, prices down, but then there's warfare because every... every all of us are Matatu owners. Correct. We have no passenger. Which is why economic <laughs> growth is about increasing the size of the, of the pie. So more people... We're reproducing. We're still reproducing. We're still a very fertile population. Our kids need to find jobs, and their kids will need to find jobs. And so the issue then becomes that uh, if you, you, you want economic growth as a matter of national survival. The last thing you want is economic contraction. And at the rate of overtaxing your people, you trigger uh, a contraction. Because not only you just aggregate demand because people stop spending money, but you give them an incentive now to go looking for things that are not necessarily good for this country. Or best case scenario, and that's even for leaders, is when human capital then relocates to another country. Why do, why do they say it's a positive? Because sometimes that's a pressure valve <laughs> that uh, can <laughs> just release. This is air. And then um, then you create a, the wrong dynamic because as I said, you have a lot of capital, human capital here. Is that you've never cracked? We've never cracked the code of what do you do with all this human talent? Right, and uh, this is a, hu- a human talent um, in a small country like Kenya, fifty million. India produces apparently five million civil engineers every year, just I- civil engineers. The size of Nairobi. Now you're competing. <laughs> you're competing in an international uh, market. Market where the countries that are getting their 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 policies right. You tell me what have you been doing here? You know, so we've seen, of course, this double decker expressway. How wonderful would it be that from now on, going forward, Kenyan engineers are the ones who are going to build that. Every time I've said that in any place, people have just laughed at me. Maybe it's because you see the result of what is built under there in terms of drainage. No, but you see, but, but, but you, you see my point is this. You, it's all right when, you, when you're doing something for the first time, but if you see you have the skill set in the country, you have an abundance, you know, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. You have all this human capital, but that human capital... It's not necessarily that we're seeing doing the fantastic work, uh, new infrastructure. All this should by now, in fact, by law, it should be by law now, that every single highway should be built by Kenyans. But we laugh. Why? There's something about our own confidence in the quality of our of own, our of our own, of our own uh, human resource. That's a huge national conversation. And if you're going to survive as a nation, 
politics and economics have got to be, you cannot separate them. And you cannot allow irresponsible utterances in, in, in either one. Because at the end of the day, this are lives of our children and the economic future. Does the economy manage international relations or does international relations manage the economy? Wow, that's... It's full of them today, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you've come with some very interesting um, questions today. Um, I think they manage each other. I think uh, there are things that... Uh, dynamics at the local level mm. will lead to um, how Kenya positions itself internationally and vice versa. I think if you look at, on the taxation part, you know, um, the IMF has been a significant part of this finance bill 2023. So that's an example of really um, external um, influence on domestic. And, and I think that has been profound. Mm. In a sense, I think it almost contradicts the bottom up <laughs> it's actually it's very top down if you really think about mm -hmm. um, how those things have been put together uh, but back to that question of politics and um, economics I think there are two factors there are four factors of production in, in economics but I think the two most significant are capital and labor and you'd find in the advanced countries that actually influences the politics, the people who tend to support capital, like in the U.S., those would be the right, the Republicans, the pro-business people, the people who uh, defend uh, labor, uh, tend to be on the left, and you have the Democrats or the Labour Party. I mm. mean, um, the U.K. And I feel slowly here in Kenya, as Kenya's economy starts morphing up, that might also be the structure of our politics where you start moving away from the typical ethnicity or sort of like the class wars and start moving towards really the right and the left where doctors will vote for policies that um, advance um, doctor yeah, career. the careers mm. and business owners will look at your tax breaks and stuff and I think slowly there'll be that, Republicans that will sort of start forming in there. Actually, to your point about uh, international, there's something very interesting um, if you do, and I, I'm a bit of a history of, uh, um, a student of history. As a country prospers, so does its citizens gain respect in the world. As a region improves its economics, its citizens reap the reward of more respect internationally. I mean, if you look at the journey of Japan, it's a classic one. There's a time in Mount Jaru, I remember it, so it's made in Japan. I used to treat it like we used to treat it made in China. We thought it was scrap, eh? It was. <laughs> Hard to believe. There are people if you say that today, they think Kwani Haoud, you lived in a nearby. If it said made in Japan, it was, it was rubbish. But as Japan rose and became uh, wealthier, and more industrial and more, you know, it, it built its base of wealth. Then Japan got respect. Respect. China's the same thing. China is you know, within, now within our lifetime. You know, we used to think of China a certain way. But as China has prospered, prospered, so Chinese have been respected in the world. So there's a very, very, uh, very powerful nexus between those two. Now come to Africa, I come to Kenya. 
you can see how if we as a continent cannot get onto a place where politics works hand in hand with economics so that we grow our wealth and incidentally the entire world acknowledges that we are wealthy we are probably the wealthiest continent on earth but we don't seem to get the respect why because politics and economics don't seem to work together mm. right the day they work together and we begin to be productivity driven to start building uh, that sort of base of talking i mean a quote I like using, and I'll use it again. I say the three things Africa is. Africa has never. Um, um, that keeps Africa poor. Africa does not have its own currency. Africa cannot feed itself. And Africa cannot defend itself. We can't, we can't fund ourselves. We can't feed ourselves. We can't NATO ourselves. Uh, we, can, we can't NATO ourselves. We can't even NATO. <laughs> <laughs> and those three are, are, are the essence of real power in any country. If you can feed yourself, if you can finance yourself, and if you can defend yourself. yourself. I, don't, I don't care what politics or economics you come from. If you can't do those three as a nation and as a people, I'm taking the whole continent of Africa, there's no way an African will go on this planet, God's good planet, and be respected until we're able to do those three. And that's for politics and economics. It cannot be that it's an academic debate somewhere. This is existential to, our, to who we are as people. And it's not enough for Kenya to you know, sort of thrive in its isolation. We must be able to do it collectively. The East African Union, the whole Africa free trade area. In fact, one of my biggest concerns about the African free trade area is the ones who benefit the most will not be Africans. We are being we are being uh, aggregated so that uh, the multinationals only need one office in Africa. That's my cynical view. And why not? It makes perfect sense if I was them. We have 10 offices if uh, there's one market now. Maybe Nairobi would explode into Tokyo, but all the headquarters for every Western business Company. will be in one place. And yes. now they don't have to worry with a thousand uh, different uh, laws. Satellite offices and laws. You know, one set of one sort of rules. The, the only people who should be benefiting from that aggregation should be Africans. But are you confident? Am I confident that's going to happen? Maybe it's I'm not. Not necessarily. S- now we have a scenario <coughs> where we have three days, three unpredictable days beginning tomorrow. And what fails me or what I fail to understand, especially from the very higher ranks of government, is there is the desire and the need to, you know, decree protests illegal to maybe throw a lot of resources to this problem in the assumption that people will actually be picketing and being on the roads. However, there's also a whole other dynamic which I don't know if it they overlook, but even if tomorrow nobody shows up on the road, but nobody also reports to the office with the innate fear that something is going to happen, the economy still gets a hit. That's right. So what then is a middle ground? If the Finance Act is what's making people very agitated and the two hegemonies in this sense our political hegemonies are not willing to sit down and meet and have a discussion mm. what becomes a middle ground because i think mm. whether people show up on the streets tomorrow or not then Can there you? is already a precedent that now from tomorrow things have to be shut 
what happens? I think what you've said that actually it's quite true. When you really think about what Wahora said in terms of the revenue collected in a day, about four to five billion. So you have three days, you have almost fifteen billion Gone. of lost revenue. Fifteen billion can build your level five, mm. couple of level five um hospitals. I think the direction has to go has to be on dialogue. <coughs> yes, we can talk about the finance act 2023 maybe that can be the introduction but i think if you think of listen to what really Wahoro said about the structure of how this discussion is and the structure of the three things that Wahoro talked about what africa has not been able to do for me what really stands out is the issue of feeding itself mm-hmm. because the reason people are protesting in the cities mm. it's not just because the cost of products is up is they're unable to put food on the table and if you really think the debate that you're having right now this actually goes this is the same debate that Europe had mm. almost five six centuries ago when you talk about political economy you know these are the French physiocrats mm. okay. who are saying you know market mercantilism mm. is really not the source of wealth because that had been the philosophy that trading gold and silver but the French really put it that it's 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 the value of your land and agricultural commodities. That's where true value comes. And I was really hoping that this administration would look at the area of agriculture. Really putting it. Yes, we talk about an industrial revolution in Africa, in Kenya, in Nigeria. But have you ever had the agrarian? Have you have mm-hmm. you sorted out matters agriculture? Absolutely not. Even the Nigerians themselves have actually gone back what they call the Dutch disease, oil has really dominated Dutch the economies that they don't have. So I think I was really hoping to start on a fresh slide and say, let's get agriculture right. Mm. Let every Because if everybody can feed themselves, also you don't see these things in countries that are food abundant, because you don't feel the cost of um, inflation so high when you have abundant of food. So I think the discussion, if there was ever dialogue, yes, it's about the Finance Act, but it's about the structure of the economy. Are we using all our land well? Are we feeding our people? You know, 95% of our wheat is imported. Can we start growing more of our food in the country? Can all the counties contribute to a national food reserve? Once I think you sort that out, even when inflation is going up through the roof, people are able to put food on the table. Once people can feed themselves, a lot of the big issues the big ticket issues actually start um, getting off the table. And I think for me, that, I think, can be the beginning of a true uh, economic transformation. Uh, absolutely. I, th- I think the, the question around feeding uh, is, is, is tier one. It's just, that's a base fundamental. We start there, and it's, I, I mean, you still in a quote of mine, I love using that. We are into the fourth, <laughs> into the fourth <laughs> revolution, we even Africa hasn't even still putting its its shoes on for the agrarian. We've not even got the agrarian. <laughs> and we're talking That's about the, the fourth re- revolution. The first one is still tied at the start, uh, starting gate. Anyway, the the, the issue around uh, food price, uh, food issue, and food pricing particularly, I want to tie it to urbanization and the youth bulge. A, 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 a growing trend in our continent, and I don't know why some of us think it's a good thing. We keep talking about the urbanization, 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 urbanization. It's good as an economic engine. You know, cities are economic engines in any country. 
also governments love them. They're also good for controlling populations. Problem with them, of course, is if you are if you're not growing your food base, the more you ob- urbanize your population, the more you create a dynamic for serious unrest, right? Because now you've got critical mass of young people clustered in one place. They can't buy food. Now, you see, for them, it's because they can't grow food. They must be able to buy food. Affo- food must Affordably. be affordable. Right side. Now, if you have a situation where you're not growing your foundation for agriculture, so that you're self-reliant, you know, that should be a national priority. We must be self-reliant in the foods we eat ourselves. Until you do that, actually, in my view, you're not developed at all. You've not even got to <laughs> ground level. You're still in the basement. Until we can feed ourselves, and if they shut all our borders, we'll be fine. Until we can do that, forget talking about being an even independent nation. Then if you go beyond that to export, it's only because it's actually a specialized uh, specialized crops because you must always have a reserve to feed your people at least six months as, 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 a, as a strategic reserve. The fact that if you have to define true poverty, true poverty anywhere in the world always has to do with food. It has nothing to do with land, and it doesn't to do with how many cars or clothes you wear. It has to do with food and the cost of food. That's when you look at someone like India. India never lost sight of our people must be able to feed themselves affordably. And that should never be a debate in any any uh, state, state uh, government or even the national. So India focused on just doing that. China spends tr- almost trillions feeding its people. And they're even more aggressive. They go and lease land in other countries, in other countries. to be able to feed their people. That's the, first, that's the first true priority of any nation. And so tomorrow we talk about Andamano. Uh, my, my question then comes back to this. True economic and political freedom starts when you can feed yourself affordably. And if you can't do that, then all these other debates, too, are, as far as I'm concerned, are peripheral. Because partly of the reason why people will be throwing stones is they can't buy food affordably. And it's, and this government is not lost on this government. I mean, uh, um, I monitor a lot of the prices, and I saw some signs, some good signs. I was just telling you earlier today. Yes. Uh, so I went up for a couple of uh, dukas in Hungary and elsewhere, and I saw one got uh, 190 now. Okay, it's got to 210, but this one 90. Okay, so the trend looks like in the right direction. Whether well, that's sustainable is another question. Thirdly, hopefully that unga is not all imported. Because the moment it's imported, you think foreign exchange. The moment you think foreign exchange, you think we are paying someone out there very hard-earned money. To eat. To eat. But if it's 190, but it's all produced locally, then, then you're on the way to wealth. Then you're on the way to wealth. And eliminating poverty. There's a famous quote from the CS of agriculture. I don't know if it's famous or infamous. That before you complain about the cost of living, ask that person how many bags of maize they've planted. Oh, and he's not wrong. <laughs> he's not <laughs> wrong. It's a crude way of putting, but I think uh, I, I think it's the, I think it goes to the heart of it. Mm. If you can, I, I, I'll give a I'll ask, I'll, I'll shut up. Huh? <laughs> um, I'm told that, if, and, and, I need, and I'm not saying as a fact, I need to double check it. I'm told that in India, with 100 shillings, you can buy two meals for the day. In other words, you can have two good meals for the day with 100 bob. 
Now, and that's a very good value for that currency. Now, now, I ask myself, okay, very simple measure for, for the power of your currency and where your economy is. So rather than use the idea of uh, a dollar a day, whether you could survive a dollar a day, because if it's a depreciating shilling, actually that dollar has, actually, has appreciated and your shilling has depreciated. So that means the 100 is not enough. Less, we're doing <laughs> even less. <laughs> Well, no, we are even no, we are asking ourselves to, um, and even more, there's been a price increase. Yes, an income increase rather. But just say your 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 hundred shilling note, how many meals can that buy you today? And I don't mean Amanda's yen. It can. Amanda's yen and a glass of milk. Can a hundred shillings feed an adult for a day? No. So much so to I the extent a that a thousand shillings can only get you two items from a supermarket. Okay, but now you go to the bourgeoisie now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, dealing, I'm dealing with another guy on the street. So let our gold standard in this country be, can we feed a grown man with a hundred bob? What, what will it take to do that? You have to kill almost all the cartels in this town. Food cartels, food-related cartels. And that brings us but squarely to tokenism, to bring out the middleman and the third party. Well, yeah, but I think it's about efficiency. Come back, it's a full cycle back productivity. You know, our agriculture is still, man, is still very rain-fed jambes, you know. By this time, we should be having industrial combines. That, combines. You know, huge, that produce food at, at, at quantity. Oh, let's go to India and learn how the Indians do it. Because by the way, the Indians don't like uh, the combines. And every county they having storage facilities or silos yes, to, to Indian, feed the people. The Indian model is built around the, the, the small farmer, peasant farmer. The peasant farmer is at the heart of their farming policy. It's amazing because it means whatever food is f- flowing in India ultimately trickles down to the peasant farmer. So the peasant farmer, farmer needs anything he needs is given to him. Of course, you have the industrial industrial level of agriculture, but fundamental says that this agriculture shall be one that the the common peasant is one who supplies the city with food. That's magic in my view. You know what shocks me the most is. Before India got to that point of it realizing that it had to feed itself, it went through a very severe drought. And part of its new strategy was to understand how to produce strong in dairy. And do you know where they got some of the consultants from? From Kenya. Your best human capital. In fact, it's so interesting that a few years ago, India hosted African um, delegates to be able to show um, Africans, how they can improve dairy produce. And Kenya rushed and, to benchmark. And what they said to the Kenyans, <laughs> they told them, we actually learned from you guys. So if you think about our dairy industry, you know, dairy is an industry where almost everybody has a stake in. Mm-hmm. Do you know when the last time the Dairy Act was changed? It's probably in the 1940s. <laughs> so that's those are the structural things that hold us back. We don't have a commodity exchange <laughs> for agricultural produce. So we have to think about, mm. it's not just about, as we say, feeding ourselves, but look at what are the structural, how can it be in the U.S., they, have an, uh, they had an agricultural commodity exchange in the 1850s, <laughs> yet in 2023, we are still having writing yeah. policy papers oh, on how to have a commodity <laughs> exchange, you know, the country where almost all our leaders have actually studied. Mm. So I think these are the things that, as you say, unpacking the structural issues that lock out people from true production. I think that, I think the deepest part of this conversation. 
Gentlemen, thank, thank you very much for the class today on politics and economics, international political economy. Wherever you'll be tomorrow, please be safe. Whichever way the pain is going to be there. So let's choose wisely. Uh, you can catch up with this latest episode as well as other previous episodes of Financial Focused on Capital FM SoundCloud page or anywhere else where you get your podcasts from. And thank you very much. We'll see you again next Tuesday. Thank you.